Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. I'm Kim Grenolds at Dogman.com with Chris Fetter, Scott Eklund, and uh, it's podcast time. It's been uh, a little bit of a crazy week with uh, first three uh, spring football days last week. I was in Vegas covering the basketball tournament. News that Mike Hopkins will return. And just, hey, before we get started, shout out to Caleb McGarry, who uh, this morning, about an hour ago, officially became an unrestricted free agent. And... He's an easy guy to root for, and it looks like Caleb McGarry is going to get paid. Chris, before we started, you said you did a little bit of work, but what Caleb McGarry is listed is, what, a top five tackle out there right now? Well, I would think he is just because, um, you know, Pro Football Focus has him, at least in terms of their grading system. They have him as a top five overall tackle, regardless of left side, right side. So, and I don't know if he's the if he's the top guy available, Um you know, because we're talking about the other guys that were mentioned, um, you know, I mean, they're, you know, it's guys like Trent uh, Williams of San Francisco, um, I think Christian Derisaw of Minnesota, Andrew Thomas, uh, the New York Giants. I don't know if any of those guys are free agents, but I would assume that uh, McGarry's got to be right at the top of the list because this morning, um, Mike McGlinchey, the former Notre Dame star, he just signed a contract that was worth, I think it's worth about $17.5 million a year with Denver. So apparently Denver isn't done throwing stupid money at people. And uh, so Caleb, Caleb McGarry should be getting some stupid money here pretty soon. Yeah, rumors of around $15 million. It couldn't go to a better guy. And the other thing, too, is what has he missed over the first four years? Three games he's missed? Yeah, for my counts, yeah. And he yeah. played in all 17 games last year. I mean, durability is not an issue, as we all know. Yeah, durability, and, you know, he's a guy that you're never going to have off-the-field problems with, and he's really well-liked. So it'll be interesting to see where Caleb uh, McGarry was. Hey, let me ask you this, because we know Caleb pretty well. Could you see him in Miami or Los Angeles? Can you imagine him living in one of those two places? Well, he lived in Seattle after, <laughs> you know, telling us that, you know, if, if Wisconsin, if Washington had been in Wisconsin, it wouldn't have been a problem, so... I think he kind of got over the big city thing, but you know, let's say let's say the Rams sign him or the Chargers sign him. Well, well you know what well, you know what he's probably going to do. He's probably going to go find some ranch somewhere like 50 miles out of town that he can call his own and then just have like an apartment during the season or something. You know, I mean, that, he'll figure out a way because you, I mean, with his family and everything like that, I rem- I remember what happened with their with their house in Fife, and you know he can buy them a whole new place in Fife and a whole new place in Battleground and a whole new place everywhere else they want to be because, like I said, this is going to be stupid money and it and it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Hey, I I don't know. I was at a basketball game in between his freshman and sophomore year, and we everybody was telling him he w- was going to be a better offensive player than a defensive player, and he was you know dead set on playing defensive end, and that's where he was his freshman year, 
And I remember seeing him at the basketball uh, game and they go, yeah, they moved me over to offense. I'm going to be a tackle. And I asked him how he was adjusting because when he was being recruited, he told me that, uh, you know, there was just too much concrete in Seattle and he just wasn't used to all that concrete. And he said, this is what I mean, this is Caleb in a nutshell. He said, you know, there's a lot of concrete in Seattle, but I figured out if I quit looking down and looked up, there's a lot of hot women at the University of Washington. That's Caleb. Yeah, and a lot of sky and Mount Rainier <laughs> and water and all sorts of things if you look up. So that's, yeah. you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on at UW. Yeah, I, and you remember this well, too. When, I mean, because what is he, 6'7", six, 6'8"? Six, oh, yeah, 6'7". And then the cowboy boots add another inch and a half, and the Stetson adds another six inches. I, do you remember how massive he looked? He's always been a fairly large individual. I mean, I remember meeting him for the first time at the Kiggins Bowl in Vancouver. I think it was probably end of his sophomore year, beginning of his junior year maybe, before when he was still at Battleground. And, uh, yeah, he was he was a large individual even then. So, yeah. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys that's just I call him country smart. You know, he's one of my favorites. Um, And then, you know, the um, Apple Cup um, snowball that uh, we had a few years ago when I had them coming out of the tunnel, you know, doing the say who say what. And he's just jumping up and down and pounding on his head. So, uh, you know, he's one of the guys that I truly miss. So. But it's been a busy week with UW basketball going into uh, the tournament after a loss to Washington State that didn't have a good look going down into Vegas and getting uh, outed in the first game. And a lot of questions surrounding Mike Hopkins and um, whether he was going to return or not. And uh, an announcement out yesterday that he would be returning for another season. And I know there's a lot of angry and frustrated people out there, but uh, is what it is. Are you surprised at all, Chris? A little surprised. I mean, I made no bones about the fact that I thought all things being equal, that it was going to be tough to justify having Hop return. But at the same time, if you understood the financial implications and the fact that Washington just doesn't have any money right now in terms of the athletic department and they're actually running in the red right now and, and are expected to run in the red again next year that it's it's hard to you know hard to get blood out of a stone man and it's just very very difficult in these times when you're not helped out uh upper campus with with covid and everything else and you're really having to almost fend for yourself and you're in a conference where you're not getting a lot of help from your conference and uh you know it's just a very difficult time and then all the confluence of all the things that happened with the football team starting with jimmy lake having to buy yep. him out and then, you know, and then obviously spending money on a, a quality staff to surround Kalen DeBoer with. It's not like DeBoer's making silly money, but Ryan Grubb is making silly money now. Yep. In fact, I, I'd have to go back and look, but he might be the highest paid offensive coordinator in college football. Well, dive into the finances a little bit because, you know, and you've tried to explain this. And, you know, some people, when they're angry, they just don't want to listen. University of Washington has plenty of money. The the athletic, yeah, the school does. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the um, athletic department was. And they've been running in the red for a couple of years now. Uh, the COVID crushed them. It really did. They had a $30 million reserve. But with COVID and no attendance, they got crushed. 
where a lot of other schools got helped out by the schools. Washington didn't get helped out at all. Then in addition to uh, the COVID, you know, the Jimmy Lake fiasco and people are talking about that being a mistake. But when Jimmy Lake was hired, there wasn't anybody who was questioning that. Uh, period. Nobody was questioning that. That was the right move. And if he wouldn't have been hired, I think there would have been a bigger uproar. You add to that the inflation that we're going through. The coaches all got big bumps. The stadium uh, is still being paid for. That's a nine million dollar uh, expenditure every every year. And um, I asked one UW official, and this is kind of interesting, too. You know, with the stadium, Washington's still making the payments to Upper Campus, who was, you know, essentially the lender on that. And I was asking if the school uses the stadium, and they do. I And I asked somebody, well, do you charge them rent? And, uh, yeah, uh, their face got really red. So I think that there may be some um, attempt to get some help from the school on the – on the stadium payments. And then, you know, the big, the big elephant in the room is they're 30 to $40 million behind on revenues from the schools are competing competing with the media rights. And then again, there's $5 million worth of media rights. They're not going to get because of Larry Scott and Mark, is it Mark Shukin? And no. they um, accepted, you know, 50 more, $50 million more than they should have and didn't report it. So uh, the media rights deal is going to be $5 million shorter than it should be. Then in addition, <laughs> there's a lot of sponsorship money going in to pay for NIL right now that would normally be going to the athletic department. So all of these things kind of adding up. And the other thing, Chris, is, you know, people saying that hiring Mike Hopkins, you know, giving him that um, extension was a mistake. He was two-time coach of the year his first two years here. And if he hadn't had an extension, people would have questioned that. But, you know, how different is that really after two years of Mike Hopkins getting an extension to Kalen DeBoer getting an extension after one year? Now, everything looks good with Kalen DeBoer, but, you know, a couple years down the road without Michael Penix, what if things start going downhill with uh, Kalen DeBoer? Then is it looked at as a mistake as was Mike Hopkins after two years? Is it even remotely close to the same thing? Yeah, I don't I don't remember if it's two million or four million over the life of the contract for DeBoer, but is involved in that contract is a retention bonus. So he would actually get paid just by staying longer. Yeah. Which, you know, if there had been a retention bonus for Mike Hopkins on this, people would be going outside of their brains. But Again, two-time coach of the year, first two years. And on top of that, they won the Pac-12 regular season title in his second year. So there was absolutely nothing to suggest that Hop would fall on his face or they would come under hard times like they have. Clearly, COVID had a big impact on that. And clearly, him kind of figuring out who he is as a head coach and what he believes in, you know, he's going through some serious growing pains on that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, it's really impacted the program. But at the time, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that extending him would have been a mistake. And a lot of people would have actually wondered why he wasn't being extended at the time. Because generally speaking, I would think it would be very unique and very unusual if a college coach at that level, at the power five level, whether you're talking football or basketball, doesn't get extended after having that kind of success. 
at least initially, like early on. Very few just go through the length of their first yep. contract, even if they're wildly successful and nothing happens. If because, Tina, because they if, always become coveted. That's the if, big thing. If Tina Langley goes to the tournament next year and does really well, I would expect Tina Langley to get a contract extension. If Mike Hopkins would have been replaced and the next guy that came in had two years in a row where he was coach of the conference coach of the year, I would expect him to get an extension. So there's some rationale behind that. And, you know, I always say that there's a difference between making a mistake and things not working out. And I don't think Jimmy Lake was a mistake. I just don't think things worked out. And the same thing going on with Mike Hopkins. Now, a mistake would be hiring Todd Turner and Tyrone Willingham with all the red flags they had. But the other thing, Chris, is I was really optimistic at the beginning of the year with, you know, Frank uh, Kepnang and uh, Braxton Mia, the two-headed monster, and then bringing in Keon Brooks. But the problem is they lost uh, Noah Williams, uh, you know, first game of the year. And then a couple games in, they lost Frank Kepnang. I'm, I still think that this would have been quite a bit different team if they would have had those two guys all year. I don't doubt for a second they would have been a different team. I don't know if you can go ahead and say they would have been a better team by the margins that they would have needed to be in order to make the NCAA tournament. Because the Pac-12, as we know, based on what happened Sunday, they got four teams in. So Arizona State was literally, I mean, they're in a play-in game, I think, Tuesday, Tuesday or Thursday. And so they you, you can you can extrapolate by that to mean that they were one of the final four teams in the tournament. And if you look at their record and everything else, well, first of all, Washington was one and one against them. They beat them in Seattle. But they would have had to have been at Arizona State's level it, just to even be on the fringes, let alone feel like they were comfortable getting into the tournament, but that's the standard. And that's, that would have been the bar that was set in, in terms of whether or not a fully healthy Washington team with a Frank Kepnang, with a Noah Williams, with a PJ Fuller, with some of these guys, and then be able to also have all these other guys come along like the freshman guards and the, what, how they were able to progress and Mia, for instance, but because of all those things changing, all those other things had to develop and evolve. So it's just such an unknown. I'm trying to remember back when they beat St. Mary, St. Mary's what's St. Mary's a four or a five seed. Yeah, when I think so. Beat, but, but if they were in a power five conference, they would be a two or a three, probably at least when they beat St. Mary's, were they at full strength? I, I, I can't remember. I believe so. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. I, so, um, I mean, that's an indication. And Washington, Washington was at full strength. I mean, as full of strength with that, they didn't have Noah Williams, but they had kept bang. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, you know, we'll never know, but, um, you know, and people say it's making excuses. No, it's adding context. You know, they were without uh, Noah for the, almost the entire year. And when he did come back, he was a shell of his former self. Uh, I mean, you could see he was in a lot of pain. They lost Kepning. They lost Keon Brooks for a while. They lost PJ Fuller, uh, you know, at the end of the year. And, you know, if they would have had PJ or Noah in that Washington State game because the guards were, you know, TJ Bomba just abused uh, 
Keon Menafield and Corin Johnson because they just didn't have the strength to deal with that big guard. And if they would have had that, that could have changed that. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but at the end of the day, you know, we're still at a performance-based business and you got to win, you know, and Mike Hopkins is definitely under on the hot seat. You know, I'm trying to think if there will be a higher, hotter seat in college basketball next year than Mike Hopkins. Yeah, no, I think that <laughs> that will have been well established, but you look at the Washington State series and them and and the Cougars sweep, sweeping both games, you know, 56 points scored in Pullman when they had Noah Williams and PJ Fuller available and then without those guys, Bamba goes into Seattle, scores a career high, 30 whatever points he scored, and that was against the two true freshmen. So, yes, basketball is a team game there's all sorts of dynamics going on within the game but when you see that when the seniors are there the guys that are physically matching up with a guy like bomba and he and they only score 56 points washington state and then they go to washington and score 93 yeah I, I think it's fair to say that the difference in guards played a huge role in how those games turned out yeah yeah and then the other thing you know and I've, i talked to a lot of people and on you know with all everything that Braxton Mia was every was able to do this year and where he was at the beginning of the year and to where he was at the end of the year, he couldn't play a hundred percent most of the time because he had to play so many minutes. And then in addition, he had to worry about foul trouble, you know, where I think ideally in a perfect year, you know, they want to give that guy about 25 minutes a game. And the 25 minutes a game uh, for a Braxton Mia, I think, would give you a more effective and a more productive Braxton Mia than when you're having to play him 32 to 35 minutes a game. And that's where, you, if you know, there's talk of them bringing in another big, you know, and if they could bring in that third big and each one of those guys average, you know, 25 to 30 minutes, you're going to get a lot more production from those guys than if you have to play them 34 minutes a game every single game i think it'll make a huge difference there's no question it should at least on paper there's no doubt i mean it you know it makes just total sense it's just a common sense thing uh, my only problem with the whole thing is that clearly washington was forced into making a financial decision to bring a coach back that it, at least in my opinion it, there there was a situation where it probably didn't earn an extra year to come back but at the same time, it, I just find it difficult to know how are you going to be able to coach with basically a gun to your head? How does that work? Well, that's what we're we're going to find out. You know, you either rise or you or you melt under it. You know, as they always say, big time players make big time plays, and we're going to find out if Mike Hopkins is a big time coach because right now he's got a lot of pressure on him. He knows the deal. He's not happy. Jen Cohen knows the deal. She's not happy. Anna Mari Cosse, she knows the deal. She's not happy. But, you know, here it is. You either put up or shut up because if Mike Hopkins doesn't win, he probably needs a tournament bid to, uh, you know, come back the following year. I don't think that should come as a surprise to anybody. Um, you know, it's going to be real interesting in the offseason to see what players stay and what he brings in. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, who's going to want to come for a uh, lame duck coach? People are like Keon Brooks. They're looking for an opportunity. You're looking for playing time. And if it's here, they'll come. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Kim. I think I think there are always going to be 
people that look at the situation and try to see it for the upside. And there's no question that that Hop's going to be have to be in a situation where him and his assistants are going to have to, you know, treat this thing like trying to sell ice to Eskimos. I mean, it's going to be a difficult sell. It's going to be a tough sell. But at the same time, if there are opportunities to be there and, and, and a chance to really, you know, change who you are, because I don't think there's any question now. Keon Brooks is a much different player than he was a year ago. Braxton Mia is a much different player than he was a year ago. Both the freshman guards are very different than what they were a year ago, just in terms of what they know now. So there, there are opportunities to develop and opportunities to evolve and grow. That In any situation, that's true. But again, with that gun to his head, th- there's a trickle-down effect that I don't think can be ignored where it goes to the assistant coaches. They know it. They got a gun to their head. Recruiting on the road, everybody knows they've got a gun to their head. I just find this to be such a, a – because it's a confidence game, as you know, Kim. If you're confident and you're feeling good, you're probably going to play well. And I just think that the lack of confidence this year played such a huge role in this team being so inconsistent because I think there were times where we saw it where they were fantastic. And you could tell confidence was on the rise. Momentum was on the rise. It fed off of each other. And then when things started to go south, man, they really went south. Well, the thing that bred a lot of that confidence, too, was Frank Kepnang and Noah Williams. I mean, Noah is as intense a competitor as you can find. And you take Frank Kepnang, and Frank's just a monster out there. He was still the heart and soul of this team, even though he wasn't playing. And when those guys were on the court, they just had a whole different element. It's kind of like, you know, Big Frank, he's not going to let them loose. I've never seen a big go all out as he does. And, you know, there's a reason that they wore shirts that said play like Frank and they lost that guy. They lost that guy. And then that toughness and that attitude and swagger that Noah Williams brought, they lost that. And that's, you know, when those two were on the court, it was a totally different team with that swagger and it rubbed off. It definitely rubbed off. But with um, those guys out, the only guy out on the floor who had that, the only guy that I saw that had that swagger, I saw it a little bit with Keon Brooks, but it just seemed like he wasn't comfortable being that guy. But the only other guy I saw that had that swagger, that had that toughness, was Corin Johnson. And he's a freshman. But I didn't see it from anybody else. I didn't see it uh, from Cole Bajima. I didn't see it from Jamal Bay. Um, you know, I, I just didn't see it. Yeah, I, so, I didn't see it from the veterans. I did see it in spurts from from. Keon Menefield, especially when he was able to get scoring, yeah. because I think when he can get scoring a little bit, that can affect how he deals with transition, how he can maybe fill lanes a little bit more, uh, get steals, deflections that can help things a little bit, get him a little bit more active in that regard. But again, you know, when you're trying to evolve and grow two true freshmen at the same time in a defense that no one plays in high school, which is an, which can be conceived as another problem or at least perceived as another problem. Um, that will be interesting to see how hop addresses those things in regards to how much zone they want to play, how much man they want to play, how much pressure now they want to do because pressure was something that they kind of leaned on a little bit near the end of the season, obviously with very mixed results. It worked really, really well in certain situations, and on other situations, they gave up 80-plus points. So 
who knows how that's going to, how that might factor into what's going on. I'm, I'm kind of curious, Kim, like you mentioned Frank and how much of an impact he could have made. I don't think there's any question he could have made an impact. Will he even be a hundred percent by the time November rolls around? I don't know. I mean, they say that that's, you know, a nine to a 12 month deal, but with the work ethic, you know, big Frank has, you know, we'll see. This episode is brought to you by progressive insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The other guy that was, you know, could help quite a bit and was just a big disappointment was, you know, Jackson Grant. And, you know, Jackson lost 20 pounds, you know, in the COVID year. And it's like he's never gained it back. And he's just in his own head. His confidence level is practically uh, he doesn't have any. And when he was anticipating redshirting this year so he could take that pressure off and just get bigger, stronger and faster, you know, he agreed to burn the red shirt to help the team, but it just looked like mentally he wasn't there. So that was a that hurt. And they, they seriously need another big so that none of the bigs have to play the minutes that they uh, saw this year. You know, they had some success with um, with going small this year as well, but not that much. But, you know, that'll be interesting. And I plan on talking to Hopkins and sitting down with him over the next day or two. So, you know, that's one of the questions we'll definitely ask at what point they expect to, um, you know, get uh, Frank back. But, you know, Chris, I think the key, you know, when we're talking about the confidence in the gun to the head with Hopkins, you know, this team, you know, if they start off the season four and oh, as compared to two and two, I think the confidence level in that pressure is totally different. So, you know, I think with that, you know, they get four and oh, and, you know, they get that confidence level going and they can get rolling and have that swagger and attitude as opposed to going two and two and just looking over their shoulder. And, you know, it, when things start going south, they can go south really quickly. And that's why I think it's going to be important next year for them to get off to a really good start. And having Frank Kepning there to, um, you know, help with that uh, is going to be key. No question. There, and, and bottom line is when guys get hurt, now all of a sudden that completely has ripple effects for everything you're trying to do. You're playing from behind. You're trying to fill, you know, it's like sticking your fingers in the dike. You know, there's only so many fingers to go around, right? There, you, you can only fill so many holes. You can only fix so many problems. And it feels like, all of those things you talked about, like them going small or them applying some pressure. These were always things that were done in a reactionary mode because they had to react. They didn't have a choice. They had to try to figure out a different way to slice the bread. They had to try to figure out a different way to, to get the same results that they wanted, but had to achieve via very different means. And that's a very difficult thing to do on the fly. 
when you're literally in the middle of the season or in the beginning of the season and you lose a key big like Frank or you lose a key piece in the very first game of the season in Noah Williams, a guy that they clearly were resting a lot of hopes on. So that that changes the whole equation. There's no doubt about that. And then, you know, you talk about a guy like Jackson Grant. I'm 100% with Coach Hop on this that I feel you just can't be overly critical of a kid in that situation because he was put in a no-win situation. He just was. And he took one for the team. I mean, that what he did was one of the most selfless things you can do, considering he was probably aware enough to realize he needed to get bigger, stronger, faster in a hurry. Like he, if there was a way to like, you know, put steroids in, in stuff to make things to get him that much bigger, faster, stronger right away, it needed to happen. But instead he understood that he had to fill a role, even though he was not ready to fill it, just like the guards were in many respects. Corn Johnson and Keon Menefield weren't ready made to be those guys right off the right off the bat. They had to learn some tough lessons. So a lot of things again happened to to create a, a real untenable situation last year. Well, there another guy that was supposed to redshirt. You're talking Corin Johnson, where you know he didn't play the first couple of games because he had off-season shoulder surgery and he couldn't lift weights you know, in a long time. So he was expected to redshirt and they pulled that off. Uh, Keon Menefield, who heard of Keon Menefield? Did anybody yeah. expect him to play like this? You know, and he's 145 pounds, 150 pounds. I mean, so things were expected from guys that, you know, their role changed, you know? So um, I, th- I think that, um, you know, one of the things, and I don't know if I told you this, Chris, but, you know, when I was down in Vegas, one of the Colorado guys came up to me and he's looking at Washington warmups and he goes, do you guys have any big guys? You got guys with muscle? And I pointed to Anthony Iglesias. I go, yeah, the five, six guy. And I think that's going to be one of the keys in the offseason, too, is getting guys stronger, because you take a look at this team right now. And Nate Roberts was the only guy that they've had that's had any muscle last year. And they don't have anybody that's really that. Well, you know, other than Noah, you know, and is he going to be back or not? But I think they need to get stronger and more physical. And part of that is going to be getting out of the zone at some point and playing a little bit more man and putting bodies on guys and, you know, more rebounding, which is going to get them more possessions. But when you're, you know, the microcosm of this season to Chris was not only the injuries, but their lack of being able to rebound, which meant more possessions for the other team. But the thing that drove, I, I know it drove you nuts, but the careless turnovers by guys should know better. Well, it's just stuff like, like it became almost parody. The fact that Cole Bajima was stepping out of bounds. It's like, you can't even stay in bounds. Like what? What? But I mean, just 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 simple lack of awareness. Jamal Bay stuff. lowering his shoulder, thinking he he's not going to get called for a foul. How many times did he do that? Right, 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 right. But you know, you go back to the strength and conditioning stuff, which I think was such a huge thing. And again, who were some of the guys on that team who were considered maybe the imposers or the guys that could impose their strength, their their size on guys? It was Frank Kepnang. It was Noah Williams. It was P.J. Fuller. All those guys missing for long stretches of the year, if not yeah. almost the whole year. That So when you lose a huge piece of your physicality, that's going to impact your team. I'm looking <laughs> I'm looking at the roster right now, and I'm trying not to laugh. Keon Metafield listed at 6'1", right? I get it. 
You, you know what his weight is listed on Go Huskies, Kim? More than it is. 150 pounds. Yeah. Okay, if he's 150 pounds, I'm 150 pounds. What's bigger, my arms or Keon's legs? I don't know. And and the thing is, it's not about it's not a joking matter. It's not that no. it's, it's honestly not that big a deal. It's but just it just be- goes to the point that they were in a position where Hop had to really put these guys out and and put them right in the fire. They had trial by fire, him and Corin. And I thought that they I thought they reacted amazingly well. But again, you can't you, you just have to go with the fact that some of these guys are going to make amazing plays sometimes, but they're going to make freshman mistakes. And Hop knew that. He said as much all the time. And, he, and, and basically, he was allowing for it because he, they didn't have a choice. They had they had to kind of go with what they had. And I can't tell you, because right now, there's a lot of people out there, not only in the on the Pac-12 side of things, but on the national side of things, that are going, with Mike Hopkins back, that's one thing. You know, whether you wanted him back or didn't want him back, that's one thing. But if Washington can, re- if he can retain Keon Menefield and Corin Johnson to be their backcourt next year, now all of a sudden you're talking about not just one of the better, more emerging backcourts in the Pac-12, but perhaps in the country. And I think well, that there's a lot of merit to that. Well, also, I don't think people understand Wesley Yates. He's the number two shooting guard in the country. And without looking at the roster, do you know his size, Chris? He's a shooting guard. Do you know what his I think size he's, is? Was about six three, two hundred, something like that. He's six four, two twenty five. Okay. You know what that looks like? He's two twenty five. That's going to be that physical guard that they need if Noah Williams decides not to come back. Uh, he's going to be that physical guard that they're going to have if PJ Fuller. I don't expect PJ back by the way next year. So we'll see what happens there. But those were Washington's two physical guards that they were missing at the end of the season, especially against Washington State, because T.J. Bomba just abused them and they didn't have anybody to put in there, you know, for those uh, for those guys. So, um, yeah, but Wesley Yates coming in at six, four, two, twenty five. There's a saying for that. Don't we call that grown ass man, Chris? Is that what that is? Well, I'm trying to think of the last guy that would have would have been of a similar stature. And I'm, it, it, front court, you can talk talk about guys, you know, whether it was like a Jamal Williams or something like that. But I'm thinking of a shooting guard that Washington's had, because the ones that I think of, you know, whether you're talking about the Terrence Rosses or the C.J. Wilcoxes or guys like that, they weren't 225. They may have been 6'4", but they would have been 6'4", 190 or 200, if that. This so guy's guy, obviously put together like a football player. Yeah, one guy equated him to um, the taller version of Vinnie Johnson, the microwave. You know, it's just uh, kind of equated him to the six four version of that. So he's a pretty thick kid. So that's a kid, you know, that's going to be real interesting. And um, but it under but it underscores the situation that a guy like Yates coming in with that kind of a pedigree, you still want him to be either your sixth man at the very most, right? Right. Just like you would have wanted Menefield and Corn Johnson to be your sixth and seventh guys coming off the bench because your starting guard should have been Noah Williams and P.J. Fuller or Noah Williams and Cole Badjama, or because you want that length out there, obviously, in the perimeter in the zone. There, there's just so many things that once that gets blown up, then it's like all hands on deck. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's it's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, I well, understand, but that the- you don't have a choice at that at that point. 
Yeah, the core six that they need to come back. You know, you would have Menafield and Corn Johnson starting at guard. Uh, you would have Frank Kepnong, uh, Braxton Mia uh, in the front court, along with Keon Brooks with Wesley Yates and Cole Bajima, probably the first two off the bench and bringing in a big that they're talking about would be their eighth man that they would rotate in. And if they're able to do that, I, I think that's a pretty solid you know, eight man rotation, you know, we'll see what happens with Noah Williams. We'll see what happens with PJ Fuller, uh, rumors about Tyler Linhart, Christian King coming in, expecting him to probably red shirt. <coughs> yeah, I'm just, think, I'm just thinking, because if you look at that core seven, eight guys that you mentioned, when you talk about Menifield, Johnson, Bajima, Brooks, Mia and Kepnang with Yates coming in that, you know, that, that's not going to blow the doors off of, of situations. But that is that is easily good enough to win ten games in the Pac-12 minimum. Yep. Yeah. Minimum. And I don't know what that would equate to in terms of their non-conference schedule and what they're looking at there. But can that team get to twenty wins if they if they if they stay healthy? I, to me, I think that's a completely reasonable assertion. Yeah, and I, you know, it's, it's just frustrating because you know you try to talk realistically with people and there's just so much anger and frustration and when people are just emotional you know it's tough to have conversations with people because they're just irrational uh you know we're expecting the i'm expecting the entire coaching staff to return uh definitely expecting will conroy to return i'm expecting quincy pondexter to return i'm expecting Wyking jones to return and you know i think the thing that really needs to happen is that you know i think hop needs to um, you know, and it's part of being a head coach. And like I said, I'll be talking to him in the next couple of days about fixing the offense. But I, I you know, what I'm hearing is there's going to be a lot more input and a lot more responsibility putting put on Quincy Pondexter and uh, Will Conroy to run the offensive side of the ball. Well, we'll see if that actually happens and what it looks like. And, you know, like I said, I'll, I'll be talking to Hopkins in the next day or so and hopefully get an answer on that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a football guy first and foremost, as you know, Kim. But I've always thought basketball is a pretty simple game as long as you put the ball in the hoop. Because if you put the ball in the hoop, now all of a sudden you're putting points on the boards, you're getting more assists, you're making your offense look pretty efe- efficient and effective because it's ending up in a basket. You know, bottom line is these guys couldn't put the ball in the basket. It's just that simple to me. I mean, I try to keep things simple, generally speaking. And, and if they could find some shooting touch – if, if they can get on a roll where a guy like a, a Jamal Bay in the past, when he was 50% from three during the Pac-12 season a few years back, they could find those types of guys, like more than one. I just, I can't imagine the sky's, the sky's the limit for a team like this. If you can find legitimate, consistent scoring, because now you've got a guy like Brooks, who was, who was the number one guy. If you have him come back, he's got now it'll be a second year being the guy. So you, you would assume he'd be a lot more comfortable right in that situation. Same goes for Menafield. Same goes for Corin Johnson. Same goes for Braxton Mia. Now, Kepnang obviously is a huge question mark because you don't even know if he's going to be 100% healthy by the beginning of the year. But you know that if he is ready to go and can play, he can give you 20, 25 minutes, and he can be an absolute beast in terms of things like rebounding, which they desperately needed, and you know, obviously just a physical presence at the rim, being a rim protector. So you have pieces that you can put together to make this thing work. But again, it, to me, being the simple guy, basketball guy that I am, it just comes down to putting the ball in the hole. And if they can get that done, 
you know, if a guy like Yates can come in off the bench and he can, you know, average 40, 45% from the field, maybe 40% from three, that's money in the bank for me. It's also going to take a lot of pressure off of Keon Brooks if they can get him to return having another scoring option there. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I, and I don't want to get too much into the roster construction of things, but we do know for a fact that Langston Wilson's in the portal because he yep. announced it uh, on Sunday. And um, so we, so there's that Saturday or Sunday, I can't remember, but you know, you also mentioned PJ Fuller. How many, st- how many rides do we think they're going to need? Cause I, obviously we get into the Romar math, the Hopkins math. Well, we know because Jamal Bay has no eligibility left, he's gone. And so Wesley Yates t- took his scholarship. Right. We know with Langston in the portal now, Christian King will take his scholarship. Right. So it feels like right now they're at the limit. So for any scholarship player that they want to add, whether it's from the portal, whether it's a JUCO guy or high school kid, or late kid, or whatever you want to do, they're going to have to have someone else leave. One That's to two. Is, the numbers one work. to two is one to two is what I'm anticipating. One to two. Yeah. Okay. More than likely two. And it's yeah. And so probably the, so basically the nice thing about it is, is that even though they're getting Wesley Yates, who is a newer player, they still know everything about him. So he will he to that to the coaches. He is a known entity. Uh, Christian King, obviously expect to redshirt, as you mentioned, by only integrating maybe one or two new players, and when I mean new players, guys that they're having to recruit probably starting now uh, in terms of whoever, because the portal's starting literally now uh, in terms of opening. So guys are going to be you know, entering en masse. Um, it'll be interesting to see you know, who they target, what they're going to be looking for, what traits that they're going to prioritize. Because it seems to me, based on what we've talked about, physicality is huge. Get you know, getting guys that can handle guards up top, huge. Uh, if they've played in a zone, seems to me like that would be a bonus. And then obviously shooting. Shooting to me would be first and foremost. But well, one more. I don't thing. know how you would prioritize it. Yeah, one more thing, and I think it's going to be key, is uh, learning from Coach Pete and learning uh, from Kalen DeBoer, recruiting to culture, um, because. It, it just seems like they've just taken guys on talent and not really given to the culture. They need guys like Frank Kepnong. They need guys like Corin Johnson. They need the guys that have that attitude that um, are willing to get it done in the classroom as well. You know, the OKG thing, you know, tremendous teammates, tremendous uh, basketball players and, uh, you know, get getting it done off the court as well. Um, and I think a lot of that started back in the COVID year when they had guys like Eric Stevenson and um, uh, Brian Penn Johnson and, um, you know, Raekwon Battle where some of the off the court stuff was more important than what they were doing on the court. Uh, A lot of locker room lawyers types when things aren't going well, instead of buckling down, you know, they turn against you. So uh, I think recruiting to the culture is going to be huge as well. Yeah, because really you can you can look at it as outside in, inside out. You know, if you're recruiting to culture from the outside in, mm-hmm. you're looking at the result first and trying to recruit the result and hope that the culture fits on the back end. Whereas if you do it more like what Coach Pete and Coach DeBoer have done, you recruit from the inside out where you get the culture piece right from the start and then you develop 
and get those players to grow in your system. And that's where it's difficult in this in this day and age in the portal because you just see guys come and go right when you're starting to get them to believe in the culture and grow and evolve the way you expected them to, then they're gone. And that's why it's so difficult because, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting that this is going to happen with a guy like Keon Menefield. I'm certainly not going there, but I have to use him as as an object lesson or as an example of a guy like how much has he grown? How much has Corn Johnson grown? How much has a guy like uh, Mia grown? Well, Mia would be tough because he would have to. I don't know how he could transfer again. But when you look at those freshman guards, for instance, Kim, how difficult would it be to put that much blood, sweat, and tears into getting those guys grow, putting them in situations where they have to evolve as players and as people on and off the court, become leaders their first year in college, all of a sudden put all that in and then realizing, oh, that could be completely undone because they decide they want to go somewhere else. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, and it and trust out. me, uh, there, there's schools that are going to target Keon Menafield and offer him NIL money. I can promise you that. Um, you know, and maybe Corin Johnson, Corin's a local kid, you know, and he's really tight with Will, you know, but everything I've heard, Keon and uh, Corin love playing together. But a guy like Keon Minifield from Michigan, you know, if, if somebody comes and offers him two, three hundred thousand dollars in NIL money, is there a chance he could go? Absolutely. Um, Keon Brooks, I don't know if he would transfer again. I don't know if he's graduated or not and could be a grad transfer or not. Braxton Mee is obviously not going anywhere, but uh, and Frank's not going anywhere. So, um, you know, just keeping that core group together and also Wesley Yates, he's coming. He's related to Quincy. So uh, I think, you know, all the guys on the roster, the guy that probably be the most um likely to be snatched up in an NIL deal is Keon Minifield. So we'll see what they can do in the off season to mitigate that. But uh, I would expect schools to come after him. Yeah. And I think it's going to be interesting too, because I think there is a perception out there that Washington has one of the best NIL programs uh, out there, especially on the West coast. For but football. We've really, for football. But yeah. But we've really only seen that for football. How we don't know how that necessarily is going to translate to what's going on with basketball, especially when people are pretty apathetic about the program at this point. Let's be real about it. It's that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of momentum that's being generated. The guys coming back that people are iffy about at best. They don't feel great about it, but they understand it. It's I think it's going to be really interesting to see. It's going to test people's resolve. There's no doubt about that on the outside looking in, will they feel, will they feel comfortable with trying to generate some NIL situations for these guys, knowing that, like you said, with, with Menafield, for instance, they could do something. And then all of a sudden the following year, he could be gone. So it, it just feels like it's opportunities lost. So we'll see what happens with that. Going to be an interesting off season. It's going to be real interesting. Um, I don't expect coaching changes on the staff. I would expect staff to be added, not necessarily um, uh, on the court coaches, but I expect um, Hop to get some help administrative wise. And um, I don't know how it works with basketball, where you know with football they've got analysts. I don't know um, how that works with uh, basketball, but. I know that uh, the offense needs to change, and I think everybody knows that, including Coach uh, 
uh, Coach Hop, and uh, we'll kind of see where that goes. And the so, other thing too, Kim, to think about too, in the in on the periphery, because obviously we haven't really discussed it. The facility is going to happen. Yeah, there's, there's money. There's money that's already put put aside specifically earmarked for the new basketball facility. Chris Hopkins knows further, that he can further he can than be the architect of that whole thing. If Chris, he can get it turned around, it's more than money committed to that. They've signed a contract on that. Oh that yeah, no, no, no. I know, I know. It's gonna get done around soon. Um, we don't necessarily have a full ETA on that, but we know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. So, like I said, Hopkins is kind of, he could be the architect of this thing. He can be the coach right there in the middle of it, much like Steve Sarkeesian was when Husky Stadium got renovated. So he was able to put in some of his touches and things like that. So even if Mike Hopkins isn't around five years from now or 10 years from now or whatever, he can still kind of guide this project in a direction where hopefully it will it needs to go. And, and I know that might scare a lot of people off, too, because they may not have a lot of confidence that he can do some of these other things as well, because you mentioned the CEO piece, which I think is a huge part of all this. Yeah, like I said, the contract's been signed. They're doing it. It's going to get done, you know, and that's where it's going to be interesting on where the money's going to come from. And uh, if Upper Campus, it's going to be real interesting with Upper Campus to see if they can get some money out of there. But as I've mentioned, you get money from Upper Campus. When you write a check, you get some say so. And I'm not sure having Upper Campus involved in athletics is probably going to be the best thing, but I think it's going to need to happen at some point. Well, right. And, and and a lot of those things go through not just upper campus, but the board of regents. Like if you want to, uh, you know, be put in a situation where you want to buy out your current coach's contract, you not only have to legislate for that cost, but then you have to legislate for the cost of hiring a whole new staff. How much is that going to cost? How much is it going to cost in terms of what 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 other infrastructure are you going to add? Because, Kim, you just talked about how Hop may have some infrastructure costs associated with this final year that maybe he they haven't thought of before or haven't dealt with. So, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be costs involved in this thing. And how much do you want these outside influences affecting what goes on within the athletic department? Because that's a whole different dynamic to what we're to what kind of we're already talking about. And as Jen Cohen has told me once, more than once, with everything that's on Jen Cohen's plate, Coach Pete laughs at her. And that's why people mention Coach Pete about being an athletic director. There's no way in hell that he would ever want to deal with this. I mean, the nonsense that she gets put on her desk, she doesn't get paid anywhere near as much as. as well, and we're, and we're talking about the major sports. We're, we're not even talking about the, you know, 17, 18 other sports. Oh, yeah. That she marshals on a daily basis. Football's easy. Yeah. And, and I don't remember how many uh, associate athletic directors that she has underneath her, but it's not enough. <laughs> I don't know if it could ever be enough. Oh, but no, just, yeah, she she really is. It's not a cottage industry. It's an entire industry of of what she's dealing with. And, the um, you know, I don't remember what the projected revenue was for last year. Uh, but obviously, if they're running in the red now, it's it's never nearly enough. And you hope that now that we're almost kind of fully out of the of the shadow of covid that they can hopefully get back 
to some of the, 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 the revenue generating things that they were able to do before that. But man alive. Yeah. Her, her job right now, pretty thankless, pretty thankless. Oh, yeah. And Washington fans should be lucky because they've got one of the best in the business. Yeah. It's, it's, and and she just got, she just got uh, put on the, uh, the, the committee for the playoff, which I, there's, there's very, there's very few feathers in the cap of an athletic director that can be bigger than that. She's had other job offers too. She's had other job offers. She As has no. Mike Hopkins, ironically enough. Yeah. So anyway, as people complain about Jen Cohen, I said, name a better athletic director than Jen Cohen. Name one. Name one at University of Washington is better than uh, Mike Hop than uh, Jen Cohen. And don't tell me Mike Lute either. I mean, Mike had his whole set of problems as well. So uh, well, it's, it's trying to compare athletic directors over eras and decades is such a that would be uh, it's it's not it's like equating apples to you know hand grenades. It's not the same thing at all. Culture wise, cultures are completely different. But just the way they deal with things, their 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 um, connection with upper campus is constantly evolving and changing. You know, presidents are so important to that relationship. And, and, and the, the, you know, we're not with Anna Marie. You're not talking about a Bill Gerber name, for instance. It's much different, much, much different. Yeah. So there's so many dynamics that in play there. It'd be very difficult to, in my mind, to find a better athletic director shepherding Washington through these different programs and different problems, because every single one of them is going to have a problem. Ask any student athlete about Jen Cohen. If you run into one, just ask them about Jen Cohen. And it's pretty much universal. They all love Jen Cohen. She is the absolute epitome of uh, she's the poster child for Mama Bear. And you don't yeah, want to mess with Mama I, Bear. Yeah, it's, it's very rare. I would think that you would find a lot of student athletes in certain schools saying that they would have picked a college, not specifically because of the athletic director, but it was a nice touch and it was certainly a bonus. And I think in the recruiting process of a lot of these student athletes, you'll find that her, not, not even necessarily her involvement, but her understanding of what's going on and her level of support, which I think is, is the key element there. Support um, has been not necessarily unmatched, but it has certainly been there when it needs to be. And I guarantee you it's something that all of the sports, men's or women's, has been appreciated. I I just I just kind of smile because I just think that the first time Jen Cohen walks into that college football playoff committee room with the khaki slacks and polo shirt and sweater vest guys, and they're gonna think this little blonde woman's going to come in and when she's done with them they're going to go what the hell was that because she's not going to be afraid to mix it up in there of course she I'm, won't, I'm, she I was say, I'm showing my ignorance kim is willingham's not on there anymore is he no 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 okay no no he if, paid, if he was money for that if he was he'd be khaki slack polo shirt sweater vest guy well, that's okay. I mean, I just was curious because I would love to have seen that. That would have been an interesting oh. dynamic. Oh, yeah. Jen's not afraid to speak her mind and drop a few profanities in there. So that'll be interesting. And uh, so we'll see what happens. But, hey, before we wrap this up, Chris, just a couple of things. Football, we had three uh, fall football practices, spring football practices last week. I was only able to be there Monday because I had to head out Tuesday to go to Vegas. But uh, just a quick overall, just 
what it looked like compared to a year ago? Well, a year ago, there was just a lot of, of a lot of kind of unknowns, at least on the media side, because you just didn't know how these guys operated and and kind of what they were trying to get accomplished. And of course, the, the schedule was a little different, too. Whereas now you had three practices in the very first week of March, which was completely different. But I think it I think it achieved the objective that Kalen DeBoer wanted, which was get on the field as soon as possible after the bowl win against Texas to be able to kind of still tap into a little bit of that muscle memory. Like Mateo Mele told me uh, a few days ago that it really helped him because he didn't feel like he was completely divorced from the 2022 season. He was still able to process some things and it still felt fairly familiar to him. Whereas if you wait until April, when you've gone through four months of not doing anything football related and you put spring break on top of it, you really do feel like you're starting from scratch. Now, I think when they come back at the end of, of March, they're going to be doing it from a position where they can, they can kind of ramp up from these first three days it still feels familiar to them and they can really hit the ground running the way they want to. So there's that. And then I also think just generally speaking, they had two indoor practices, one outside. So I think they were able to get a little bit of a mix in that. And then I think they were able to get a bunch of the new guys, at least starting to get integrated a little bit because there were plenty of guys that didn't really do a ton of team work, even though they were there, for almost all of the individual stuff, you talk about guys like Tuli, Latui Gasanoa, uh, Fatui Tuatele, um, Devon Banks. Uh, I know Javion Green got a little banged up during the first three days. Um, so there are guys. There were guys that uh, that were on the periphery a little bit. But I think when you look at some of the new guys, when you look at like Daniel and Gata for for at running back, uh, Zach Durfee uh, as an edge player, Raylan Goforth um, at linebacker. Uh, Jabbar Muhammad was a little bit more hit and miss because, uh, as DeBoer said last Friday, he was still kind of um, dealing with a, a ding that he got during winter conditioning, for instance. So they were still cautious with some guys. But generally speaking, I think they got a lot of great work in. Um, the one thing that really kind of stood out to me, Kim, honestly, was that the defense looked ahead of the offense. And not only was that a little kind of unexpected just because the offense was so good last year and you just kind of expected them with Michael Penix Jr. running the show that they would just kind of pick up right where they left off. Well, that isn't necessarily happened. But the other thing is, is if you go back and look at all the, the kind of the really good Washington teams and maybe just in general, the trend in college football is when teams come back for spring football, it's usually the defense. If you're in a good team, it's usually the defense that is kind of ahead of the offense. Because the offense is kind of constantly installing things. They're adding wrinkles here or there. We saw a few already from Ryan Grubb just in the first three practices. I, I know of at least two or three different things that I saw that I would love to be able to tell people about, but we can't. We just, you know, that wouldn't be fair. Um, but it, it, just overall, I thought, you know, defense being ahead, there were, you know, a, a few guys that I thought stood out that, uh, it wasn't necessarily expecting like uh, I think Denzel Boston at receiver really stepped up the first three days, showed what he could do as a guy that could maybe make some waves in that in that packed receiver room, for instance. And then you look at the defensive side and some of those freshmen that were coming in, man, the last practice 
uh, on Friday when when they had their light bulbs on, they had some shoulder pads on, uh, even though they can't go full pads yet. A guy like Devin Bryant, one of the freshman uh, linebackers, he really showed an instinct and he wanted to get after it a little bit. And they had some skirmishes at the end of practice. You know, they had some guys involved, some of the veterans, as you would expect. But there were also guys like Tybo Rogers, the true freshman running back, who was kind of in the middle of things, too. So there were some of the younger guys that weren't afraid to mix it up and get into it with some guys. And uh, I thought that was fun, too. So I think there were a few different things that really showed up that were a little unexpected. But for the most part, I anticipated a team that would hit the ground running, look energized, look uh, like a team that came off a really strong winter conditioning program, uh, which I talked to Ron McKeefrey about on Friday, and I'll have that up this week as well. So I thought they just they did a nice job of integrating the things that they needed to. They kept the guys uh, away from some team periods that needed to still heal a little bit, but yet still got a lot done. Yeah, just uh, real quick, just noticing on Twitter, um, 7 o'clock Thursday night, uh, the women's UW women's basketball team will host San Francisco in the first round of the NIT tournament, and that will be at Heckhead, Alaska Airlines Arena. It's still Heckhead to me, but uh, 7 o'clock on uh, Thursday night for the women's basketball team at Heckhead. Uh, wrap it up, Chris Fetters. Anything else we need to go over? No, just generally speaking, again, I, I – I, fully appreciate and can understand the disappointment for a lot of people in not trying to turn the page on the Mike Hopkins era just yet. Um, But again, I I really hope that we've laid out the understanding of why it had to happen the way it had to happen. And this was, if you followed us on the message boards and the basketball board, hopefully this wasn't a a, a revelation to anybody because you've been right out front, Kim, and talking about how this was financially kind of a non-starter in a lot of different ways and uh, didn't really deviate from that because of the information we were getting. So, um, you know, again, you can either look at it half full, half empty, depending on who you are and and how you look at these things. I just think that as we've laid out, the core of the team looks like it could be really strong if if the coaches can keep this thing together and keep the train on the tracks. But it, we're, we're, with today being the first day of the portal where guys can open up, and we saw with Langston Wilson going into the portal, that's going to be the hardest thing right now is recruiting the guys that you have on your team to come back and be a part of something. Did they see enough in what they were able to accomplish last season in their own individual development to feel like they can put it all together next year and make a run, Pac-12 tournament run? NCAA tournament run, whatever that may be, if they feel confident enough to do that, can they keep this, can they keep the band together? And that's what I think Washington basketball fans need to really be focused on in the coming weeks. Again, I'll be talking to coach Hopkins over the next day or two and, you know, we'll sit down and I'll flat out ask him, how do you fix the offense? You know, so, uh, you know, we'll talk about that and, you know, we'll dive into that pretty deep. Scott Eklund on his way back. He was at a recruiting uh, football camp down in Dallas, Texas. So expect a lot of info from Scott coming out all week long on that uh, fall ball. Excuse me. Spring ball start back up in a couple weeks. Uh, expecting Caleb McGarry to sign a big contract. So keep an eye on that. And then we'll see what plays out in the transfer portal for college basketball. Then in addition, uh, just today is the last day for those who aren't subscribers to the premium content. Uh, today's the last day, 50% off your annual subscription to uh, dogman.com. And uh, 
you know, we were on top of this Hopkins things a long time ago, and we've been pretty much right on the money with everything that's going on. Um, we were pretty much on top of it with Jimmy Lake getting fired. We were pretty much on top of it with Kalen DeBoer being hired. So, you know, uh, if you're just looking at the front page to get all the information that you want, that's not where the info is. You're going to look at the hardcore football, hardcore basketball, hardcore recruiting board. That's where all the good stuff is going to be, stuff that we just won't put on the front page until after it happens. So just make sure to check those features out on dogman.com. And for all of us, and thanks for holding down the fort last week when I was out of town, Chris, and uh, we'll see Scott back in the, uh, he'll be back later tonight. So for all of us at dogman.com, I'm Kim Grenolds along with Chris Fetters. Go dogs. (laughs) 